At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Western Hunting Hub podcast. Thanks to all you new listeners out there. Welcome, and uh, you can connect with me and what uh, stay up to date with the episodes coming or after they've been published on Instagram, the Western Hunting Hub podcast, and then also on Facebook. Instagram seems to be the main focus there, and then I'm also Black Hills Antlers on Instagram as well, so you can see what's going on there with the old antler business. That's been something that's been rolling since just about the same time as the podcast, just to help support this hunting addiction. Uh, it's been a crazy, crazy antler buying season so far, and I know you guys are about to hit the fields here pretty quick. They're starting to pick up a few elk sheds, and antlers are hitting the ground for sure, so... Um, enjoy, be safe and make sure you're being legal. I know majority of listeners out there are from Colorado. Actually, I do want to give a little shout out. My, um, I think I can't remember the actual date range, but the last month, my number one town was Salida, Colorado. Uh, so bunch of you from Salida, that small little town uh, is is supporting me quite a bit. Appreciate it. Um, give me some feedback on that, you guys in Salida. Otherwise, Denver for sure is the main city. Uh, also, some other interesting facts. Top countries, obviously the U.S., but also Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Brazil, and the U.K. in that order. So thanks to all of you uh, folks listening internationally. Top states, Colorado, Texas, California, South Dakota, and Utah in that order. Uh, and then top cities, Denver, Salida, and Omaha. So pretty cool to, to see where you guys are all listening from. A little creepy probably on your side. And another big thank you is uh, to ben.j.photo. Uh, all of you need to go over to Instagram and give him a follow. Uh, I may have been using his photo uh for my podcast cover and he reached out and let me know that i was using his photo so uh i'm very appreciative of it i found i think i found it or the person that made my stuff found it i don't know but i uh wanted to give him some credit for that photo that picture which is my instagram cover so make sure you go and follow that photography of wildlife i don't know exactly how he does all that stuff getting the pictures but he shared with me he does some spends a lot of time in the field uh and is spending a lot of 
lot of hard work and money and energy trying to capture these images. So pretty crazy to see these big giant bulls that he is getting really close to and getting some really good images. So go over and to uh, Instagram. It's ben.j.photo. And you can see his work there. It's really, really impressive. Quick apology for all of those uh, looking for Colorado-specific information. I went back and I just looked at a couple of reviews. I don't do it very often, but a lot of those reviews were folks looking for Colorado-specific information. And for those of you that have been with us since day one or early on, we started as Colorado Hunting Hub. Colorado Hunting Hub doesn't exist anymore because I moved away from Colorado and so it just didn't make sense for me to be trying to create a Colorado podcast uh, when I don't even live in Colorado. Uh, I hunt in Colorado quite a bit. I do some other things there for, uh, i got friends there, but it's not my primary state now for hunting. So needed to definitely uh, make, a, make a change there and look at more Western things. So uh, if you're looking for Colorado specific things, I'm still going to have it. Uh, definitely an area that I spend a lot of time in. Uh, and I really try and focus on not doing things that are just South Dakota either, uh, just so you can you can gain something from it if you never get, went to South Dakota. You can still learn about Western hunting and the gear needed and the preparation and all that. So in this episode, we are going a little further west or way east, uh, and um, my buddy actually in Colorado, uh, chatting with Danny, just a little bit about some international hunting or just outside of your the lower 48 hunting. Uh, Danny's a well-traveled individual, a great guy, great friend, and uh, kind of gives us some tips and things on just dreaming up those really fun hunts, those getting through the logistics and the travel, uh, and then some different things about on the hunt uh, and after the hunt. We all dream of a awesome Western big game hunt. Uh, there's there's even more amazing big game hunts out there as well. And I'm not just talking about Africa. Africa is not necessarily the only place you can go. It is not the the only place you can go internationally. There's some other amazing places, and Danny's proven that. Uh, to uh, and, and you'll hear all about that and some different stories, things that he's doing there. So make sure you tune in to the rest of this episode. And before we get started with this episode with Danny, uh, it has a little chunk that's missing in there. Very short, but it's just the first 10 seconds of the introduction. So let me introduce Danny Sanders, born and raised in Colorado, and it'll jump right into him talking here in just a sec. Uh, so as he gets rolling, all he missed was a introduction of his name and born and raised in Colorado. So enjoy this listen. All right, Danny, thanks for jumping on the podcast here. Uh, we were neighbors for eight years, and uh guess it took me get moving away to, to really keep in contact even more than we did then. So it's kind of funny how that works out. Uh, but you have gone on some really interesting hunts and, and have some booked here soon uh, over the last few years, and they're definitely a traveler. So I wanted to bring you on to talk a little bit about some of your hunts that are uh, not necessarily international, most are, 
but overseas anyway, and going to check out some new places. We're not just talking Africa. Fell in love with hunting and fishing at about age six. Um, so rolled with that <clears throat> my whole life. Um, and I started traveling when I was pretty young and that's another one of my passions. Um, so I kind of, within the past five, six years kind of merged the two, um, passions and my two favorite hobbies, uh, hunting and traveling and just started doing some new adventures, getting abroad and, you know, Alaska, Hawaii, or they're not international, but a couple of those kind of hunts too. And, uh, love it. Yeah. Yeah. So we really started talking, kind of about some of the this content once you got back from Europe and you were mind blown about some of the the ways that they manage wildlife some of the the ways that hunting was and the regulations and there's some things that interested interested you there like I could tell it was different cuz you've been to Africa um and, and we'll get to get to that story here in a minute but I want to just kind of start at the beginning just what uh kind of what what brought you to besides you know your love for traveling what what brought you to some of these hunts and you at first your title for your outline was kind of little dreaming it dreaming it up so what were some where did some of those adventures those dream adventures kind of start um you know i i got mongolia scheduled for this september and the way the way that um sparked my interest was uh my gunsmith had actually gone there and i went into his living room and saw the animal that he harvested and i was and he told me uh i'll never forget this he said that wasn't a hunt that was a the adventure of a lifetime and immediately i started looking into booking that hunt you know saving up for it um it's been about three years in the planning um but i just it just sounds like a real cool cultural um difficult mountain hunt you know I, I don't imagine i will be speaking to too many people on that hunt i think there will be one english-speaking guide uh, but that just sounds fun it just sounds like a cool adventure get me to a corner of the world that i never would have gone to um yeah. never really dreamed of it until i saw that animal and i heard this story from another hunter so you um, got you got mongolia come uh scheduled uh, what are some of the others that were in the past ones that you have, you have gone on just so we can get a, get an idea starting with, I think wasn't Africa your first. Yeah. Africa was definitely, uh, the first one. Um, since I was a little kid, I wanted to shoot a Gemsbuck. Um, I saw a picture of one when I was, I think in fourth grade and I just thought it was the most beautiful animal. And for, you know, for decades, I was like, I got to get to Africa at some point in my life. And finally, Finally saved up some money, made that happen, and just got a little taste of it. Um, and it was really, it was really cool. It was not, not an easy hunt at all, which most people think Africa probably would be. But the animals were insanely wild, um, you know, difficult to hunt. Um, and the the people I met over there, um, the locals, just incredible people. The trackers, what you learn from the trackers and. It, it will, it'll honestly blow your mind as a hunter. Cause we think, you know, we grew up in Colorado hunting all kinds of different things and the, the style of hunting abroad or in, in Africa, at least completely shocked me. I, I did not understand how they, how these trackers could track these animals. So that, 
got me more interested. So I, I did rebook Africa again, uh, did that again. Um, went after a lot more, you know, rare species the second time around, you know, some tiny 10 animals and things like that. Um, but again, like the people over there, they're just, you know, some of the poorest people in the world and they're the happiest people you'll ever see. Um, that, that definitely struck my interest and I definitely wanted to do some more, you know, get around different places. So this past, uh, couple months ago, I have a friend in the Navy and he was stationed in Spain and he had invited me to do an Ibex hunt over there that he lined up and, uh, went over, um, checked that out and same thing, just great people, insanely beautiful countryside, um, got to, got fortunate enough um we were both able to harvest ibex um but it was such such beautiful country and just such great uh the guide was just became such a good friend immediately that i i rebooked a different hunt for a chamois for next year um on the french spain border for uh chamois up in the mountains up there um what's yeah i'd say like Chamois? Oh, how do you, how do you pronounce that correctly? Chamois or chamois or is it Ch- both? Chamois is the name, uh, the French name, but it, most hunters call them chamois. I'm sure you've seen them shoot them in uh, New Zealand and parts of the Alps and stuff like that. So it's a yeah. very small animal, you know, not nothing with huge horns or anything like that. But I just thought, you know, what a beautiful mountain animal. I mean, I love mountain hunts. If I can include mountain hunts in my travels. I like to do that while I still, while I can still hike the, you know, hike the mountains and stuff while I'm young. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean the, the, the traveling aspect, the people you meet, I mean, that's the real, the real trophy, the cultures you learn, um, you know, the, all, all the different things you see while you're traveling abroad on a hunting trip. Um, that's the real trophy, not the animals you harvest. Yeah. And then Hawaii, you know, and you, you won that hunt through Epic Outdoors. So, again, not necessarily just an international, just looking at overseas. Because I, I want to group that in there just because it's a pretty big time investment, money investment. Uh, it's just planning. It's like a new country going over a huge body of water, different, different kind of country, different kind of public land. So... Um, so we're sure. going to include that in this as well. So I, I think that's all of them, right? Mongolia, Africa, Spain, and Hawaii. Uh, yep. Yeah. And then yep. in the, what's, uh, what's also on the, on the goal list for, by the time you're 80, <laughs> cause I oh, figure, man. I figure um, we'll just kind of hang out a little, <laughs> calm things down once I'm 80. <laughs> I don't know. You know, at, at this point I have, um, I've hunted on three different continents and I'm about to do a fourth. So that's definitely something I want to maybe try and hit them all up. I don't think you can hunt Antarctica, but I know you can bow hunt Australia. I think that would be pretty neat. Um, actually my, my pH in Africa relocated to New Zealand and he's a guide there now. And I had so much fun hunting with him. I'm going to, you know, I'll probably, try and do a, a tar hunt and then maybe some fishing we'll go down there and visit him. Um, but yeah, there's nothing that's nothing that's not on the list really, Clint. Of I course. mean, there's definitely, I don't think, you know, I'm not going to be the next Jim Shockey, unfortunately, 
Yeah. But, um, yeah, there's, there's only a few corners of the world that I would not travel to. Um, I, I don't know. I just love it. And any of the-, the, way, the way things are in this country, in the United States right now, it's, it's really just relaxing just to, just to get out of here every once in a while. Um, yeah. Just get your head out of what's going on and, and the, the, the stress that comes with, you know, what's going on in this day and age. It's, it's yeah. Always good to bounce around. So, so, uh, don't, I, I want you to reference like each one of these as, as you think of a story or something that comes up. So, uh, not just talking about Mongolia or Spain or Hawaii, but, um, come back to them. So you've kind of laid out a couple of those things in, in an outline here for me that I didn't always think about. Obviously logistics is a big piece, but what, and I think that is probably one of those scarier pieces to the whole deal. Customs, paperwork, license, currency, um, all of that, uh, not including traveling the, during a pandemic, we'll get to that, but what are, how do you approach that sort of stuff? So going to Spain or, or whichever one that was, uh, um, kind of sticks out in your mind. What's, what's the process for doing that customs, that paperwork, that, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, Spain was different. So I, I did not bring a firearm with me. Um, my guide over there had, he pretty much had the same setup that I have at home. He had a really nice Tika rifle, night force scope and everything. So I, I agreed, you know, that, that sounds easier not to bring a firearm on that trip, but I had to, I had to get my hunter safety, a current hunting license in Colorado, a passport, and I believe my airline tickets all um, notarized, like a photocopied and then notarized and sent to the Spain, the consulate in Spain. I'm sorry, the consulate of Spain, which was in Los Angeles. And of course, they wanted, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever to do it. So that's that was kind of difficult. It took about six weeks to get that permit back. But once you get the permit back, then you're you're legally allowed to hunt in the country of Spain. And then when I got over there, then I had to do, um, my guide helped me, but you have to get the licenses online and everything. Um, it, so it's, it's difficult. Your gu- your guides will always help you, um, give you instructions of what you need to do. Um, well, that's like what for, was, yeah. yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. Like, how do you know you didn't miss anything? Is it, you got to Google a checklist for how to hunt in Spain and, or I suppose your guides are probably your go-to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's difficult when you first start, but then you realize, um, actually traveling anywhere right now is such a mess. It's with the COVID testing and all that. I mean, you just really have to, even if you're not hunting, traveling, you'd really have to have your stuff organized. Um, but, but like with firearms, um, I've traveled with firearms a few times, um, to Africa and before you leave, you have to go, this is like two months before you leave, you have to take your firearm to a U.S. customs office, which is weird because you're bringing a firearm to the airport. Yeah. Um, and then you meet with a customs officer, which is never any fun. Those guys are, they got a job to do, but they're never very pleasant people to deal with, um, unfortunately. But they'll document your serial numbers on your rifle, your scope, and then they ask for your binoculars because anything over, I think it's anything over a thousand 
maybe worth over a thousand dollars has to be documented to be brought back into the United States. So they definitely, uh, they definitely check that form when you get to wherever you're going. And then when you're getting back, you have to have that customs form if you're carrying a rifle with you. So how do you know then, you know, picking a guide is something I've talked about recently with a couple of different folks. And how do you know that you're getting someone that you can trust uh, because you're you're kind of trusting them almost with your life. You screw up something in one, not necessarily with your life, but you screw up something there and you could be in some legal crap. Like you could be legally in some, in a dark hole. Um, you do something wrong. Like what, how are you trusting someone? How are you, what research are you doing to find a guide that you can trust? Um, I do a lot of, a lot of my research I do online. And then I also have a, a hunting, um, consultant agency. I use huntnation.com and then I also use outdoorsinternational.com. And these people have been on these hunts and they actually have rapport with the outfitters. So it's kind of like a second contact. Um, and you know, they get a percentage of the booking fee through the outfitter or whatever, but you definitely, you know, when I'm going to Mongolia, um, I don't know that outfitter. I've never met him. I've seen their website. You know, I see the anybody the anybody can create a fancy looking website that says anything about their values. And I, I was trying to get to that question with Jim Shockey, and I don't think he quite was understanding my question, or I didn't say it well enough. But he was. I, I wanted to ask that question of like, how do you? How do you have these overlapping? How can you how can you ensure that their morals and ethics are, are are you're not getting yourself into something you don't you don't want to be involved in? For uh, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I like to look at how long these places, how long the outfitter has been in business, says a lot. Oh, um, sure. And I've I've noticed um, it hasn't happened to me, fortunately. Um, I'm sure it might, um, you know, if I keep doing this, it'll happen someday, but I've heard of, um, several different people booking hunts at, at the expos, at, you know, the inner, uh, the hunt, hunters expo in Denver or the Western hunting expo in Salt Lake city. And the, you know, they book these, they make these promises, you know, discount hunts and stuff like that. Then they get over there and I've heard the same with, uh, plenty of guys going to Africa and having a horrible experience and same with Europe. Um, so just because somebody shows up at the expo doesn't mean they're necessarily a credible outfitter. The top outfitters that I've used internationally do not do expos. They go all specifically off word of mouth. Huh. So that kind of says a lot as well. And then, you know, when they know when, they give you a good experience that you're going to go back and you're going to tell everybody to go, you know, they to go with so-and-so outfitter, you know, cause you had a good time or whatever. So what made though, what, what were some of those stories? So it made it a bad hunt for them. A friend of mine, he did Spain as well. Um, they had him shoot a small Ibex that they said was big and he shot it. And he, you know, he's, he's kind of a trophy hunter, but, um, he wasn't happy with it. Well, I guess they went around the corner and there was a big one there and the guide shot it for himself. So, oh, 
just things like that. Sure. Um, I have another friend. I recommended him to go with um, the outfitter that I used in Africa, and he went with a cheaper one and didn't harvest very many animals. And I mean, I know it's not, these hunts are not all about harvesting animals, but you fly all the way to Africa, you know, you want to get your kudu or, you know, whatever it is you're specifically out there or after, you know, it's a, it's a commitment to go to those places. So you definitely don't want to be hiring somebody that's just going to give you a run around and, and have a bad experience with bad lodging, you know, kind of want to know what you're getting into. I, I would think you'd, there's just that little level of security. Yes. It'd be nice to, to fill a bunch of tags, but if it's not the ex- experience you're looking for, then yeah, you'd be disappointed with it. For sure. Yeah. Like the, the upcoming Mongolia, I'm really just going in blind and I'm just looking to have a good adventure, but I know something there's, something's going to go wrong. There's an insanely amount of, difficult travel um i think it was like eight hours on a bumpy four-wheel four-wheel drive ride just to get to camp and then we horseback in from there i mean it just sounds like i'm more excited for the adventure than i am even harvesting an animal i think it's just gonna oh, you know yeah. the, that adventure is gonna be a trophy in itself so and think about the food you're gonna eat it's like <laughs> yeah oh for sure um yeah, that's one thing. When you travel, you know, we're all used to our, our normal diets. And you when you travel, you eat some weird things, for sure. <laughs> um, it's usually good, you know. But I I imagine sitting sitting around in the dirt eating beans or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what they, they, what they eat in Mongolia. But I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a different, you know, a different experience. And, uh, yeah. But, yeah, no kidding. So, um Traveling like you have recently during the pandemic, what are some of those things that, that you've encountered? Um, Hawaii was really a, that was a struggle. That was before, um, vaccination shots came out. So they had insanely tough protocols getting around the islands. Um, I spent one full day. They would not, admit admit me into maui so i had to fly i think from maui to honolulu to kona get some paperwork figured out in kona back to honolulu take a covid test even though i had already tested negative they made me do it again and then flew back to maui so it was like six flights (laughs) from kahului maui to kahului maui (laughs) to reduce (laughs) <laughs> to reduce uh exposure <laughs> yeah it didn't make sense no <laughs> um so yeah i mean i'm i'm honestly i'm not into getting vaccine shots but i did it uh, my mom was really bugging me about it and then uh but and i travel a lot so yeah. so i sucked it up and did it so far so good but uh but yeah traveling right now if you want to leave this country it's it's not too bad leaving the country as it is coming back to the United States. It is insanely difficult to get back into this country right now. Well, you are, um, already would have been in Mongolia, right? When yeah, because that yes. got rescheduled twice. 
uh, Mongolia got rescheduled twice because of COVID, and then Spain got delayed a year. So I finally got Spain out of the way. Um, but yeah, I think I put my deposit down. I think it was over three years ago for this Mongolia hunt. So definitely looking forward to completing that trip and yeah, yeah, check that adventure out. Hopefully, I make it back and uh, plant plan another one. You know, I actually I had such a good time with that outfitter in Spain. That's why I, I did that. He gave me a good deal, so I I have two two international trips scheduled in the next twelve months. So holy smokes. Um, yeah. for the listeners, uh, Danny is the one that I never really know where he's at. Uh, <laughs> you've sent me some pictures <laughs> or videos of something and it's like, man, you could be in Vegas. You could be in Mexico. I don't know where you are <laughs> or if your buddy sent you that and forwarded it to me. So I always got to ask cause I don't know where you're at ever. So I think that's cool. Um, so a lot of us get really homebound and it gets really hard to do. So, um, for the. What and, and why are you not that way? Uh, and I think there's a real easy answer to, to it, probably. But but why? What have you done to to not just get stuck with staying home? And and what barriers have you gotten out of the way to to be able to do that? Um, luckily, my job allows me to travel a lot. Um, actually, I do travel for work quite a bit too. Um, but I've I've you know I've worked for the same company for 16 years. I've gotten enough time accrual off, um, to go do these kind of things. Um, but yeah, you know me, Clint, I've been hunting in Colorado my whole life and it's, it's just getting difficult. Uh, I don't think the quality of hunting is what it used to be. It's getting difficult to draw tags. Um, and when you do get out there, you've seen it, it's, it's kind of a zoo. I mean, it's, it's kind of sucked out of, uh, it really has sucked a lot of my love of hunting in my, my own home state out of my system. Um, I've been, I mean, last year I almost got shot by another Turkey hunter. So just, I don't know, just getting out and seeing new, new places and not necessarily international, but you know, there's a lot of cool hunts in the United States. Obviously. I mean, North America is in my opinion, top of the world as far as hunting destinations. Right. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see the the uh, still giant draw to come to Colorado. And yes, most of my listeners are from Colorado. Uh, I was there as well. I love hunting there. Uh, but we're all seeing that, but still people are traveling from a long ways away to travel, and it's like the destination hunt in the West mm-hmm. for, for elk or mule deer. And there's still great hunting. Absolutely. We're, we're not, uh, um, kicking Colorado to the curb because there's amazing mule deer, amazing elk and, and antelope. It's just like you said, it's the change. Probably that change is what, what, what's turned you off a little bit. For sure. I mean, we still have the inventory and stuff, but I, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Running into too many hunters. Another problem is uh, drawing tags in other states. I, I apply for several other states and I've never drawn anything ever. Yeah. Uh, so well, actually you... this fall, looking forward to drawing a couple tags just to hunt around home and have enough points to actually do some fun hunts in Colorado. So looking forward to that. But yeah, but I, I'd say uh, the main thing that draws me hunting internationally is 
just the new cultures and then the people that you meet. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So switching gears to gear, uh, what are some, uh, what's some gear items that, that are important to you to, to bring or don't bring on some of these hunts? Um, number one is optics. I mean, you're going to a new place. You obviously want to look around. You're going to see animals you've never seen before. So definitely bring a, you know, um, I wouldn't say a spotting scope, but if, I mean, if you can fit it, bring a spotting scope depends on the hunt, but, uh, your binoculars are, are key. All these trips I go on, those binoculars are in my face the whole, the whole time I'm out, you know, in the field or, or even out, you know, doing other stuff. But, uh, and then obviously, you know, um, you don't have a lot of room usually, you know, so you want to pack light. Um, I'll bring a, you know, decent pair of pair of boots obviously you need boots um but like the pack like so if i'm if i'm traveling uh i mean i am not a traveler uh it's just something we haven't prioritized in life but if i'm traveling it's like it's not my hunting pack that's coming along nope um but yet are you just like doubling up on, on that stuff? I mean, you fill up your hunting pack with your typical hunting gear and then you got your, your hotel stuff and travel stuff in another bag. How's that all kind of start? Um, so the first time I did international, I brought, I brought everything. I brought game bags and bone saws and all this stuff that I, I realized as soon as I got over there, I definitely didn't need it, but I didn't want to be embarrassed. You know, you know, us as hunters, we're always, organized and prepared we want to have everything we need in the field well yeah i didn't need any of that stuff in africa they pretty much they take care you know once all you have to do is bring your rifle good ammunition and your binoculars and and, you know obviously your hunting clothes and stuff but uh yeah but like spain you don't you don't you don't need to overdo it I, i i'll say it that way yeah um you're going to alaska bring it bring all that stuff other than that um your 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 guides are you know they'll have all that taken care of Hmm. but But, like uh, spain what what was in your pack for spain um i had boots one pair of hunting pants um you know like a fleece hunting shirt and then a rain jacket rain jacket i would say imperative Cause you never know when you're going to need that or just a good wind windbreaker rain jacket. Yeah. And then those, those poofy, you know, those poofy down coats that squish down into nothing. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you throw one of those on and you know, almost all over the world, you can be good with a, a simple little setup like that. A couple pair of good socks. Gators are always a good idea. Uh, but like I said, don't don't overdo it too much. Um, a, a lot of your nice gear you will ruin, so you don't need to necessarily bring like expensive, you know, your most expensive hunting gear. Um, Africa, I don't care what kind of gear you have, you're gonna rip your stuff up in the in the bush over there. And then another another thing to do, um, a lot of these countries, you know, these guys can't get the equipment that we have, so a lot of the time I'll leave. I haven't left a pair of binoculars yet, but I've left all, you know, 
nice hunting jackets and just stuff that they can't get over there. I think the guides, you know, they really appreciate getting, you know, I like to give them a tip and then give them something that they can't get where they live, you know? Oh yeah. That makes like sense. That. But, uh, you know, gear can always be replaced. Um, I would say, uh, what last this past trip in Spain, my luggage was lost in Portugal and I didn't see that suitcase for a month. And I was, you know, kind of a little stressed out about it. But the thing that I was the happiest about is my binoculars were in my backpack. Yeah. So I would say, you know, whatever's, you know, what your expensive, good gear, your cameras, stuff like that. Keep those on your carry on. Um, but you like, know, when you get like oh, your, your firearm. So choosing your firearm, if you need, knew you need to bring your, your firearm and, and let's say, I don't know what your plan is for Mongolia, but, um, you've got your new custom rifle and you've got mm-hmm. maybe some other ones in the, in the gun safe that are probably $700 gun, 600, just an average gun. Which mm-hmm. one are you bringing? Um, I'm, you know, I'm really up in the air on that. Um, that new custom is, a, you know, it's a long range custom gun and I'm going to be on a insanely difficult mountain hunt. But yeah, I don't want to, I don't think I'm going to bring that gun. I'll probably just bring like a 300 wind mag and tell them, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable up to, you know, 400 yards opposed to eight, 900 yards with my other gun. But if I, you know, if I, if something happens to my cheaper rifle, I can live with that, you know? Uh, right. Yeah. I, 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 was just, I, I was just kind of laughing in my head right now, picturing my custom rifle in the hands of some mongolian guy laughing his ass off while i'm flying back without it or something but (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah you don't know what kind of country has different sorts of pirates thieves you don't know who you're who you're running into and Um, that could be something to get nabbed up one thing that just hit my head right now that's important is um i've seen i've i've heard i've seen this happen and i've heard of it happening several times too is your ammo must be in a its original box. So if you had like one of those plastic ammo cases or something, your ammo, it doesn't matter where you're going, it is not going to be allowed to enter whatever country you're going to. Maybe Canada, but I believe Canada even, I mean, everywhere I've been, you have to have the original box for the ammo that you're bringing. So reloads are out of the question. Yep. Even if, how could they even tell though? Like if you took your brass and I reloaded some Barnes bullets and put them back in the factory box, probably get away, uh, probably would get away with that. I would think you probably, you probably would. I, I don't think they'd really check that too much, but, um, I, I did, uh, make it through security in Africa, got to my gate. And then I was met at the gate by six police officers in Africa because when I checked in, somebody didn't fill something out, something right out on my paperwork. So that was scary. They brought me, uh, they were nice. They weren't, you know, I wasn't under arrest or anything, but they escorted me all the way back through security, all the way to the front. I almost missed my flight just because some, they wrote something down wrong about the ammunition. Huh? So that, yeah, that definitely kind of freaked me out but uh no kidding well let's take a real quick break i want to when i come back i want to talk about uh spain and just 
walk us through that hunt. Yeah, sounds good. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Okay, so tell me about Spain. Like, go through kind of the whole whole what that hunt was like getting there, because um, I can't visualize it. I can visualize a Colorado elk hunt all day long, not a Spain ibex hunt. Sure. Um, so start off just getting there. It's always that's always an adventure in itself. I had to fly to London. Um, London Heathrow is the worst place on the planet in my opinion it's just a mess and it <laughs> took me a couple hours to even figure out how to get to my next flight but Danny, anyways Danny, got- i've got like 50 listeners from london i guess not anymore <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> anyway so i'm sure i'm sure they're all great people i'm sure london's great just not their airport <laughs> yep <laughs> uh, that's a total lie uh, but anyways uh yeah i made it to made it to madrid uh, met up with my buddy and we stayed the first night in Madrid and then the outfitter picked us up, I think about six o'clock in the morning. And I think it was about a five, five and a half hour drive to, um, our hunting location. And that's always, you know, that's always one of the best parts of these hunts is you get a, you always get a long drive wherever you're going with your outfitter. So it gives you a great great opportunity to get to know each other. Um, the thing that cracked me up about my outfitter from Spain is the whole drive. All he did was talk crap about Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, man, he's not even your president. Like we're the ones, I don't know. I won't go into politics, (laughs) but I I thought that was pretty funny. Um, I've noticed that, uh, on a couple trips, everybody's always interested in talking about American politics, even if they don't even, live in our country it's it's definitely a topic of yeah around we're, the world. we're a superpower it impact impacts them somehow our president yeah. impacts them it, i don't really care who the uh I, I didn't know who the ukrainian leader was until just recently yeah i mean nobody did no yeah no that's crazy well your long drives with mongolia are going to be real interesting because you're going to have a hard time <laughs> yeah. with the language barrier uh, I'm definitely going to have, you know, probably have some, uh, I don't know if I'll, I'll, you know, bring a pen and paper and see if I can, you know, draw and, you know, whatever to chat, chat with these guys. But yeah, there's, that's going to be interesting for sure. I'm, I'm sure I'll make friends with people. You know, that's one cool thing is you can always, you don't have to be able to speak the same language as somebody, but you can make friends with them at the same time, you know? Yeah. 
um, so, which is pretty special. Yeah, no kidding. And, and so you're you're on a long drive. So for back to Spain. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we got to our uh, hunting location. Took most of the day, and uh, we stayed at this tiny little town. I mean, nothing is in this town. There was one little bar and one little um, bed and breakfast to stay at. Sounds right up your alley. That's, yeah, that's where we stayed. This little little old lady she's probably in her 70s but she was the bartender in town and then she was she's the one who made all our food um took care of all of our you know bet you know lodging and all that and she fed us like kings you know all the beer you could drink and all that stuff and i think i think she did it more for fun because i think she charged us like 40 dollars a night which was crazy for all the and everything really cheap but uh but really fun we you know had a great great evening getting to know everybody and um catching up with my buddy who was in the navy over there was really cool um then up uh up real early the next day and out um out looking for ibex um one the first thing i noticed uh the game wardens are all over the place they keep an insanely good eye out on their wildlife in europe which is really cool. Um, you know, great for conservation, obviously. But, uh, yeah, we got checked, checked in the morning. I mean, that they just saw us drive by and they knew it was, they could just tell it was hunters and and stopped us and chatted with us a little bit. But, uh, but my buddy in the, in the service, obviously he was first hunter. I wanted him to shoot first. Um, so we hunted, uh, first morning he shot his Ibex. I think he had about a, 250 yard shot and smoked it. It was pretty cool. It's like, what kind of terrain are you in? It's like, you're in this um, little town. Would you, I mean, just drive up mountain roads and, or there, or are you doing just straight death hikes? This one was a uh, uh, spot and stock from the vehicles mostly. Um, so you'd, you'd find the guides would find the animals that we wanted to go after from the vehicle. And then we'd hike in from there, but it was very, very hilly. I would call it like foot hilly. Um, not mountain, not mountains. Cause there was some, uh, the Pyrenees mountains were real, really close nearby. And those things look like the Alps. I mean, they're, you know, covered in snow and very high, high terrain, but where we were, it was just, you know, rolling green, brushy hills, um, steep nasty canyons i mean you know ibex they they love to run around in rocky terrain they pretty much live on the side of rocks so a lot of cliffy areas um but yeah we were watching watching those things you know they jump 20 20 feet straight up in the air and land right on a sheer rock cliff like it's nothing i mean their feet just sponge into it so just seeing those animals was i mean incredible i mean harvesting one was great too but uh just watching it was it was worth the whole trip over there just to see those run around and stuff what species uh, or subspecies of ibex was that that was a basidi and there's four there's four species of ibex in spain and basidi they have the the bigger horns um but not necessarily the mo- most expensive one to hunt so it was a it was a fairly 
overpriced hunt. Um, definitely not expensive. I know a lot of people think, you know, when they hear international hunting, it's expensive. I'm not going to say it's not expensive, but you can really stretch your dollar a long ways abroad compared to, I mean, look at elk, elk and deer. I'm seeing mule deer hunts in Colorado going for twelve, fourteen thousand dollars right now it's to shoot a trophy mule deer, which, you know, me and you used to do in our backyard on public land and stuff. So I do love uh, hearing you complain about your taxidermy bills sometimes and and, tra- yeah. <laughs> and transporting you know, them back. <laughs> yeah. You know, the hunts aren't necessarily that expensive, Clint, but the taxidermy bills, yeah, that comes back and bites you <laughs> for sure. <laughs> uh, but I'm just but, still picturing your uh, conference room with like starting your meeting and and uh, before you start your meeting just let everybody know i killed everything in here (laughs) (laughs) that's all i think about when you talk about your uh good good way to start negotiation right (laughs) yep yep that thing was about to eat me but i shot it first (laughs) so yes well when you get you know some of those those animals back in you know, most people, when they come over to your house and stuff, they don't even know what the name of the species even is, but it's more of a story, you know, you just remember who you were with and where you were and the, the things you saw the day you harvested it. I don't know. It's just a cool memory. Yeah. Okay. So it's definitely worth, uh, worth sending the animals back, you know? Oh um, yeah. Yeah. You, but, you have to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you gotta come back and Maybe have some pictures, but you got to have something back to, that's that you can enjoy for for the rest of your life and and point at and tell your friends and family as they come over. They want to see that thing. I'm I'm excited to see it. I mean, I saw a picture, but that wasn't enough. I want to see it. Yeah. What? Um, okay, so your buddy shot one, two hundred fifty yards, dumped that, and then then what? Um. Then we, yeah, it was cool. We uh, caped it out and you know, got, got everything taken care of. And then we had a, uh, this is, you know, it's always one of my favorite parts of the hunt is just sitting around in the dirt somewhere eating lunch. Yeah. Just, uh, that's just one thing. I don't know. One thing about us hunters is just, you know, our time when our time together out in the field and that, that was just really cool sitting there and, you know, no fancy lunch, just eating some, some, uh, yamon is what it's called. It's this, uh, cured, cured, uh, beef or it's not beef it's a pork that they serve over there but uh just eating that you know sitting in the dirt eating that eating eating some bread having a coke with the guides and you know the guy had a helper and he didn't speak any english and just you know trying to trying to bs with him a little bit um i always try and speak uh you know i'm obviously not good at it but i always try and speak a little bit of the native language you know what i can um and you can tell it goes a long ways. They really appreciate that you even try, you know? Yeah. Um, but that was pretty cool. Just having, having a nice lunch out in the country. And then we went after, uh, went out looking for one for me. And, um, we found a herd, we were sneaking up on them and they spotted us, man. They were freaking. they were probably 600 yards away when they spotted us and man, they took off and they, it was really cool watching them jump up these rocks. I mean, these things are jumping 20 feet up in the air. Watched them run over the horizon, and we got back in the vehicle and kind of drove over to 
the area where they ran into and hiked in there and found them. And, um, the guide was like, he, he goes, can you shoot long range? And I was like, yeah, I can shoot long range. And he had a, a real nice, uh, 300 wind mag with a night force scope. And I laid down prone. I mean, took my time. I probably laid there for 10 minutes, you know, pulling the trigger with, with, uh, no ammo in the gun, just getting comfortable. And then took a deep breath, let a little bit out and shot. I think it was a little over 500 yards and, and got him. So wow, that was, that was that man. We were, we were tagged out day one. Um, it was supposed to be a three day hunt. So that just left us a couple days, you know, to hang out in the mountains and enjoy the scenery and then head back to Madrid. So, so what, uh, what was the process just logistically in the, with, uh, like obviously a guide there. So he was right there field dressing and, and helping you with that or doing it. However, that's done. Uh, but what about the meat there? What's that's, you hear about Africa and it stays there locally in mm-hmm. Spain. What happens Mongolia? What happens with that stuff? Um, Mongolia, it sounds from what I've been talking about, we'll get to, we'll get to eat it in camp. Same with Africa. You get to eat a lot of it in camp, but, um, Africa that, you know, they sell it to the, the game or the, the meat markets. And then a lot of it gets donated. A lot of the trackers take it back to their village Spain was kind of interesting. Um, the The area we hunted, this is kind of weird, but um, they had these they had these condors, these endangered condors. And Fish and Game requests that you leave. I know you hunters aren't going to like this, and I was weird about it too. But they request that you leave the the meat in the field. So while you're you know, while, while they're caping out the animal and everything, we have these huge condors circling over our head. Weird. And the, the reason they did that is, uh, in the area, the condors were attacking and eating, um, domestic animals, domestic livestock. They were having a huge problem with that. So, and we talked to, you know, game wardens about that while we were in Spain. Um, and you know, the, you know, my guide explained it to me. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. But yeah, we back away from the carcass and we watched these condors just pile into that thing. And 10 minutes later, that whole, I mean, there wasn't a bone left that those things eat the whole freaking thing. Wow. Um, and so I was kind of, I was kind of weird about that. Um, and I asked him, I was like, is every animal, do you guys do that with every animal you hunt in Spain? He's like, no, that's, this is the only area in the whole country where they had those protected condors or one of those endangered condors. Um, so I thought that was kind of weird, but, um, the yeah. hunt I'm doing the, the chamois hunt I'm doing, he says, yeah, we'll eat all that meat in camp. It's not a very big animal, but, uh, hmm. well, you definitely want, you definitely want to eat, you know, try what you harvest. That's, yeah. that's why I hunt. That's I don't hunt for trophy animal parts or anything like that. It's always about the meat. Well, let's, um, let's put this into context a little bit and back this up. This is another one of those, uh, and I haven't put it out there yet, of my or the hunting hub's principles, um, things that I stand by. And, and one of those is 
uh, supporting all styles of hunting, legal, sustainable hunting. And even <laughs> if that is, uh, say, hunting deer with, with dogs in the east, I mean, we can look at that in the west, say, ah, I don't know, I don't know. Um, and we can look at different styles of hunting and disagree, um, but it, it, we don't have room to disagree with those sorts of things um, with, with such a small community and, or to, to fight against that sort of thing, because I know you and I both would, you especially would really hate. And, and you were at the, the Capitol footsteps there, to, uh, saying something about the, the mountain lion, uh, hunting, hunting predators with, with, uh, hounds. Um, that's, that's something that's, we do here in the West and it's acceptable and it's not easy. It's some of the hardest hunting you'll ever do is, is following dogs behind a, behind a mountain lion. Oh, absolutely. And, and that is absolutely okay. You could probably bring those, those Spaniards over here and be like, you are, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. They may, may think that. So I know that does sound weird, but it's got some reasons to it. And like you're saying, there's a domestic uh, depredation issue, and that's their way of combating that that may actually be financially more sound than uh, setting, putting up barriers or top canopies over top of these livestock areas. That's probably not even doable um, yeah. to protect those species, and you can't do anything about the condors if they're a protected species. So. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds weird and, and maybe wrong for me defending it, but maybe not. I th- I think that's that's something that we are so far removed from that we probably shouldn't be the ones saying anything about it. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I, I cherish my meat that I get from my animal. I always have freezers full of meat and I, that's all I eat is game meat. But, uh, yeah, I get asked that question more than any question about international hunting is what do you do with the meat? And, you know, unfortunately, you can't you can't bring meat back to the United States. You have to go through USDA, and I mean, even even if bag of beef jerky, you'll get you pulled out of line in customs. Um, <laughs> and that that's the truth. I mean, any kind of food, they're they're always picky about any kind of food you bring back. Hmm. I mean, Hawaii, I was able to you know freeze my meat uh, in the hotel. They had a walk in freezer, and I was able to freeze it and send it back. And, you know, now I have a freezer full of Ibex and Hawaiian sheep, you know, if you can do it, absolutely do it, you know, but, um, Africa, you know, you just want to make sure you, you know, I don't want to see somebody just leaving it in the dirt and just taking the head or something like that. And they absolutely, that Africa, I think they took care of, they took care of the meat straight from the field and took absolutely perfect care of it better than anywhere I've seen anywhere in the world. So nothing goes to waste, um, over there. Uh, but yeah, everywhere you go is different, you know, and kind of like you said, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to judge how somebody does something when you're, you know, it's new to you. Um, right. Everywhere you go, man, everybody's got different ways of hunting and everybody's always, everybody's always got their opinion. Correct. Yeah. I mean, Yep. But, uh, so is that, I'm looking at the picture of your Ibex and is that a, like a good representation of one? Is that a monster? Like what, what did they say about it? 
that was good representation, but not near uh, a monster or anything like that. I didn't want, I just wanted the experience and basically to see the, to see the animals is the, my favorite part. Um, but yeah, we saw some, we saw some really big ones and uh, I don't know. I just was, I was just interested in just a fair representative of the species. And that's what my buddy was doing too. And uh, yeah. And one, one thing to, to realize when you're doing these hunts is you're representing your country when you're on these hunts. So if you don't show, you know, I, I know my guide in Spain, he was mind blown at how appreciative me and my buddy Cole were of just how beautiful the animals were. He's like, you guys didn't shoot big stuff. He's like, you didn't care about, you know, if something was wrong with the horn. He's like, you guys were here just to, just to enjoy the hunt. And he's like, and that's why he, he made me a offer on that chamois hunt. He's like, I want to hunt with guys like you. But, you know, and I, I always ask these guys, I was like, tell me about your worst clients. And they're always, unfortunately, they're always from, from the United States, but you get guys over it, you know, they fly halfway across the world and they shoot something and they walk up to it and they're not happy with it. I mean, to me, how disrespectful is that for, for one to the animal for two to the, you know, the place you're visiting. I mean, I don't know. Right. And, just, and the, the guide that worked, worked to get that for you or, or did the homework and took you out. Yep. It's like going over to someone's house and complaining that the bed was too hard. Yeah. Or their food yep. was no uh, good. Uh, if, you, if you look at that, that picture of my Ibex, the tip of his horn was broken off. Mm-hmm. And the guy had asked me right away, he's like, does that bother you? I was like, no, why would that bother me? Animals, that's what animals do. Yeah. I don't think I've ever shot a bull elk that didn't have a broken tine. Um, it's just character. But he told me, he's like, man, I get some guys that will throw a freaking fit. Um, if something, you know, if something's wrong when they walk up to it. And, oh, my gosh. And I, I, you know, my my guide in Hawaii, he told me that he had a guy shot an shot an axis deer and was throwing a fit and everything and didn't like it wasn't happy with it until he put a tape measure on it and it was a half inch over 30 inches or something which made it a boon and crockett or whatever and i guess the, he told me the guy started jumping up and down and like screaming like enjoy so he wasn't like, happy until then until he measured it he was pissed off so Hmm. so one thing I'm like, I always, you, you gotta give it to outfitters cause they, they all have stories like that. And unfortunately they, you know, they just have to suck it up and deal with these people. But, but when you're traveling, you know, you're, you're representing where you come from, you're representing your country, you know, be respectful, be polite. And, and odds are you're going to get invited back and you're going to make friends. I mean, I get, t- I get WhatsApp text messages, every other day from my friends in Africa. I mean, we text each other back and forth, which is pretty cool. And, uh, my new buddy in Spain, same thing. Me and him text each other all the time, just shooting hunting photos back and forth. And hmm. it's, it's incredible. There, it's incredible. The, uh, friendships you can build, you know, having, I never thought I'd have friends in Spain, you know, yeah, no kidding. Um, looking forward to making some in Mongolia, other places around the world. So, Yeah. That'll be something else. I'll be interested to to hear all about that. So 
I know the one one of the last things we got on the list here is and is always a really important topic to talk about is tipping and, and afterwards kind of the what your how you're getting stuff home. So the yeah, kind of, kind of talk about your philosophy of tipping and how you how you go about that. Um, I'm a, I the little bit of tipping I've done not because I haven't tipped it's just because i have done very little guided fishing trips and things um is i I try to just be discreet with it i really don't like talking about it but once it's here it's like here you go thank you so much i had a great time um what yeah what do you what do you do with tipping um you know you definitely want to you don't want to tip if you're not having a good experience and fortunately I've always had a good experience. So I always, you know, I want to, you know, I might, I might want to come back someday for one. Um, and these, you know, these guys work really hard. You know, I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think they make a ton of money. Some of them might, but, uh, I think they're basically from what I've seen is most hunting outfitters are in the business because they followed their dream. They, they loved hunting. So they turned it into a career. So, you know, if, if, if they're, if your outfitter is working hard for you and you're getting good animals, um, I tip, you know, usually 50 to a hundred dollars a day, um, depending on what I'm doing. And you know, the, you know, that, you know, they're spending gas money and, you know, it's not easy to do their operations. So I think, you know, if you had a good hunt, you know, let them know, I mean, give, give them a decent, you know, decent, yeah. you know nothing that'll blow the bank or anything like that, but just to show them that you appreciate them and, uh, and leave, you know, always leave a piece of gear, uh, rifle cases or, you know, binoculars or, you know, things like that, that, uh, you know, if you see something that they don't have that you have and you can go home and replace it, you know, that goes a long way just to leave it with them. Yeah. Um, so like when you're leaving a tip, I, I always get confused sometimes. Like I got the captain, I got the first mate, I've got, uh, the outfitter, I've got the, the, the trackers. Like what, how do you approach that? Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the guys that are not necessarily your, your head guide, but they're, they're you know, your trackers and things like that. Um, I always go to like Cabela's or something like that and buy a bunch of buck knives or, you know, Leathermans or something. Leathermans are great because they don't have, you know, anybody can use a Leatherman. But, um, you know, a lot of the guys that are just working for the outfitter, um, give them something like that, just a small gift. I've noticed a lot of outfitters do not, I don't know why, Clint, but they don't want you to tip their guys. They want you to tip them and then they hmm. tip their guys, I guess. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, I don't understand that. So... No, that's to, a, that's like, a good idea to kind of like not offend the guide, you know, just give him a pocket, you know, a cool pocket knife or something like that. Huh? Well, that's interesting. And then, uh, your taxidermy, like I know we were talking about that a little bit, but how, how do you, I'm assuming that's a lot on the guide and he helps you out with it, but what are, what are some of the challenges you've seen or, or things you've learned in that process? Um, yeah, you can, I mean, you can go either way i know you know everybody's got their favorite taxidermist at home um but uh 
when you're abroad, the, the dollar goes a lot farther abroad than it does here. So like I left, um, I've never brought anything back internationally. I've always left it. Like I left my Ibex in Spain and then I left all my Africa stuff in Johannesburg. Um, for one, it's cheaper for two. They actually, you know, they know these animals, they know how to right. better taxidermy. I've seen some heinous looking stuff, you know, that taxidermists will pop out when, you know, they're probably good at doing a mule deer, but they're not going to know how to do a kudu or something like that, you know, with a thinner hair. And so, I mean, it's up to the hunter. Um, you know, I think it's, it is cheaper to get it done abroad, but it's not cheap to ship it back either. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Everybody's got their choice. Um, I know you talked to TJ, your, our, our mutual friend TJ a lot. And I think he brought, brought a bunch of stuff back. And I think that turned out, you know, yeah. it, it all came, came okay. <laughs> but, yeah. Yep. Uh, that literally came up the other day that it just doesn't look right. <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. look right. And never going to get that, that Buffalo back. So, um, but it's the way it is. <laughs> like, yeah, it's the way it is. And, Cause it's, I bet you over time that a lot of that stuff is just, you're not going to be able to, uh, there's going to be, as soon as you aren't allowed to bring trophies across borders, it's going to just crumble a lot of, a lot of those industries. And, and isn't it like, uh, the UK that they're having a hard time getting things through or, or they tried to, or did pass something. I don't even know. I'm talking completely out of my understanding but um if you can't bring stuff across borders then i just think that's gonna have a crippling effect oh absolutely um i mean it already you know it's it's dropped a lot of a lot of prices on animals you know animals that are not valued as much anymore because you can't bring them back into the united states which you know conservation wise that hurts that hurts the species in my opinion you know you can't like for instance you can't bring a a polar bear back into the united states or you can't bring a african lion back into the united states well when you add up how much money hunters spend to go after these animals you know that's money put into you know the the community the wildlife and everything so i think it's banning it coming in i think it hurts i think it hurts the wildlife more than it helps it yeah and well the the folks doing that don't really understand wildlife anyway so that's yeah that's kind of where we're at yeah that's true but well danny uh you got some crazy stories and and uh, uh really interesting interesting adventures that uh are fun to hear so i appreciate you coming and chatting with with me on on that and sharing some of those tips and things for for doing some of those hunts because uh, I didn't want to talk about Africa necessarily and, and talk about more of those uh, just more difficult to get to logistically type hunts. So I think we covered that pretty well. Uh, but anyway, well, I'll let you get back to your, your weekend and, and we'll talk to you later. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Clint. And uh, always good chatting with you. Alrighty. But it ain't my ground. This is God's country. 
In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.